seat and grab your Bible and let's go to the 139th Psalm. Um, you know, we originally kind of advertised this is the last week of the You Ask For It series, which it is, and the question was supposed to be uh, about uh, parenting and praying for your kids. And for those of you who submitted that question, let me apologize up front for maybe what's going to be false advertising, but I decided this week to change the question. So uh, Monday night, um, we kind of had a wild hair thing. Lily took her AP test, turned in her senior thesis. She said, can we go to Cheesecake Factory and get some cheesecake? And so uh, we did that, and her brother texted her. He said, like, look at the news. And, of course, the news is, you know, this leak coming out of the Supreme Court. Uh, of course, it's not finalized, but about the possibility of uh, Roe versus Wade uh, being overturned. And uh, so just in thinking about that and talking to our leaders, I decided this week to change the question that we're going to address today to why do Christians believe that all life is sacred and that abortion is wrong? But why do Christians, and I understand this is a generic question, but why do Christians believe that all life is sacred and that abortion is wrong? And the reason that I decided to go with this question is because this is going to be a huge deal in our country in the weeks to come. I mean, people started protesting that night. Uh, you know, the actual decision, which could be this, it could be different, will come out probably sometime in, in, in June. It's going to be a big deal then. And uh, just felt like that needed to get ahead of the curve. The other reason, just feel compelled by Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, which says, Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. And so that's what I want to do this morning. Um, now, let me just say this quickly. If, if this does turn out to be the final decision, you've probably already uh, heard people saying stuff about abortion being outlawed or that kind of thing. They're saying this does not outlaw abortion. This simply just returns it to the states where it was before Roe versus Wade. And there are some states that have trigger laws in place that will immediately outlaw abortion. Some have laws in place that will immediately trigger, including the states where there are the most abortions, that will keep it legal in that state. Others, it will have to be battled out. There's issues because many abortions now are done by pill at home, where that's like a mail order uh, kind of thing. This is not ultimately a legal issue, and this is why it relates to the church so much. It's ultimately a battle for hearts and minds. Uh, the, the goal, if you believe that life begins at conception, which would mean that that is a, whatever, that baby, uh, or if even you want to use the terminology of fetus, uh, is a human being, that would make abortion wrong. But the issue is not ultimately legal. Uh, the goal is not ultimately legal. That's a part of it. The goal, as many people have said, is to make abortion unthinkable. At its root, we're dealing with a worldview issue. We're dealing with questions like, does God give life or are we the product of chance? The sanctity of life versus a quality of life ethic. When does life begin? When does a baby become a human being? How do we define life and who we are? And that's really what the 139th Psalm speaks to. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher, theologian, and third pr president of Princeton University said, Of all the knowledge we can ever obtain, the knowledge of God and ourselves is the most important. And that's really 
what we're going to see in the 139th Psalm today. I think this message kind of ends up unintentionally bookending this whole series because the first question is, you know, how do we have a healthy self-image? And we talked about a healthy self-image is seeing ourselves as God sees us, nothing more, nothing less. And that we're, God sees us as he created us in his image. We've fallen through sin, but he still loves us and we're redeemed uh, by Jesus Christ. You know, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-26 and 27, we're made in his image. Uh, Colossians 1-16 to 17. For by him all things are, are created, uh, all things were created through him and for him, verse 17. And so the answer that I'm going to give you to this question that I want to try to unpack from the 139th Psalm is simply, we are made by God and for God, so life is intrinsically valuable from the uh, moment of conception, which means that abortion is wrong. And this is a fundamental issue. Is there an eternal God who exists, who is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, who chose to create us in His image, does that define us? Or are we simply the, the product of time and chance and random evolutionary processes that were soulless, highly evolved animals who try to define in some way our own worth? Which one is? That, that's the foundational issue here. So, Let's unpack the 139th Psalm. Let me show you from that why I would answer this question this way. In this Psalm, first of all, we see in verses 1 through 6 that God knows us intimately. God knows us intimately. Look, look at what the psalmist says here. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand on me. So this isn't just uh, you know, kind of theoretical knowledge. This is foreknowledge in the sense uh, of preordaining, of planning things, of, uh, of uh, you know, creating us for purpose with a, with a plan for our lives. And his response is, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot contain, uh, uh, attain it. In other words, he's like saying, this, this is just blowing my mind. This is too much that the God of the universe would know me in this way. This is saying that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. So, uh, but beyond, again, just theoretical knowledge, he knows us in a personal way. Now, that doesn't erase the fact that we've separated ourselves from him by our sin, and we don't know him as our father unless we come to him through Jesus Christ. But if you're not a Christian, God knows you, has plans and purposes for you, and cares about you. So, number one, he knows us intimately. But number two, I want you to see that God accompanies us continually. He accompanies us continually. Uh, we see in verses 7 through 12 that he is omnipresent, that he's all present, which means that we cannot escape him. Which means if you're running from God, that's a futile effort. When we run from him, we run into him. Look, look at what the text says. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. 
but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God accompanies us continually. He's always with us, which is both encouraging and a little scary. I mean, the next time we're tempted to do something in secret that we think we can get away with, remember, we're not doing anything in secret. Number three, and, and this is where we're primarily going to camp out. God makes us wonderfully. God makes us wonderfully. This is the claim of Scripture. This is the worldview issue that I'm getting at. This is... Whether or not we believe this is true is what will decide how we respond to the abortion question. He's pictured here as being omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, which means he can do whatever he chooses to do that is consistent with his nature and his character. Look at what verses 13 through 15 say. They say, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now, we know that God does this through biological processes, but we believe that God is ultimately the giver of life. There's a, there's a great picture of this in the passage that I was originally going to be preaching on today, which is the beginning of 1 Samuel, where uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, uh, was barren, which was considered a curse in that day. She couldn't have a child. You know, she goes to the temple, and she's pouring her heart out. And Eli, the sorry priest, uh, thinks that, that she's drunk. But, you know, she, she tells uh, the, the, him, you know, I'm pouring my heart out to the Lord. She tells the Lord, if you'll bless me with a baby boy, I'm going to commit him back to you. And uh, does a Nazarite vow and these kind of things. And, and then, uh, you know, later on in the text, it says a- after that that God remembered her. But it says her husband knew her. And then she conceived. Why? Because God's sovereign and man's responsible. And listen, these people weren't stupid. I mean, they don't know, they, you know, they don't have all the scientific terminology they had today, but they very clearly knew how to make babies. Made a lot of them. And, and you know, the Bible says a lot, so-and-so knew so-and-so, and they begat so-and-so, right? I mean, I've never counted that, but that's got to be in there hundreds of times, I would think. Which makes it stand out all the more. When Mary said, how can this be, I don't know a man, in relation to the virgin conception of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, clearly, biological processes are at play, but ultimately, God is the giver of life, would be the claim of Scripture. Jeremiah 1.5, the Lord said to the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Uh, John the Baptist, the prophecy was that he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine uh, nor strong drink. Says he, and, and, and of course, this is an unusual case, but it, it shows that he was a person with a soul. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
Luke 141, it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. This would be what the, the, the Bible claims. You say, you really believe this is true of all children? You know, we had a miscarriage at about 11 weeks in between our first two kids, which, um, you know, I guess one of the things that shocked me when that happened is just to learn how common that is. Uh, you know, as a dumb, young, 20-some-year-old guy, I had no clue. also had no clue as to how hard it was. And, um, you know, the reality was we named that child. Too young to know if it's a boy or a girl. We chose the name Micaiah that we thought we could go for either. That's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament, if you know the story uh, of that prophet, and believe we have a baby uh, waiting on us in heaven. You know, I've never heard anybody who had a miscarriage and, you know, ministered to a lot of people as a pastor say, we're sad because we lost our fetus. We lost our baby. Um, you know, I, I believe so strongly that this is true of everyone. That, you know, when we learned that Molly was born with a really rare heart defect, I believe that God made her that way for some purpose that maybe we can't ultimately see. But uh, the words of Scripture, which are either the Word of God or they're not, say, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. You say, well, she's okay now. What, what about, you know, the people you met in the hospital who didn't go home with their babies? Would you feel the same way then? I hope so. I hope I live by conviction and not by emotion. Uh, there's an incredible book about worldview by Chuck Colson called How Now Shall We Live? And there's a whole section in it about life. And uh, one of the chapters is entitled, God Makes No Mistakes. And the chapter is about his grandson, Max, who was six at the time of that book's publication, who was autistic. And, and he shares uh, a little section from a letter that Max's mom wrote to Chuck on Max's sixth birthday. And, and she said, quote, God created Max exactly the way he intended Max to be. Max was not a mistake in the way he was made. God had a definite purpose when he created Max as he did. I do not presume, presume to know what God had or has in mind for his purpose, and I may never know all the intricacies of God's purpose for Max. What I do know is that Max is perfect in the way that God created him. He has an ability to affect people's lives more than anyone I know. A young man with Down syndrome, an actor by the name of John Franklin Stevens, made a speech on March 15, 2018 to the United Nations assembled in New York, and he said this. He said, I've been asked to tell you how to improve the lives of people with Down syndrome. The key is right there in my opening paragraph. It begins with this statement, I am a man. See me as a human being, not a birth defect, not a syndrome. I don't need to be eradicated. I don't need to be cured. I need to be loved, valued, educated, and sometimes helped. Listen, we are either human beings, everyone created in the image of God, or we're not. You see, that, that's why Christians, that, this, what, this is what it means to affirm a sanctity of life ethic and not a quality of life ethic. 
And see, th- this uh, subject doesn't just relate to abortion. And understand, I'm just giving you some basic foundational things, and this is a huge topic, and we could talk about this for hours. But in reality, it's, it's not just about abortion. It's about, is it a sanctity of life or is it a quality of life? Is it a quality of life? Um, you know, if it's going to affect the, the, the parent's quality of life, then you terminate. If you don't think the baby's going to have enough quality of life, you terminate. What about when people get old? Uh, euthanasia, it's the same thing philosophically. So what is the conviction we're going to live our lives based on? You may say, well, you know, you're really going to base what you think in 2022 on what the Bible says? Well, I would argue, and many other people would argue, there's, uh, there's the record of a famous debate in 1998 where Robert George from Princeton was supposed to debate Stanley Fish from uh, Duke about this issue, and uh, uh, you know, Robert George was going to argue that, you know, based on the scientific evidence, which has only increased in the 25 years or so since then, that abortion's wrong. Stanley Fish was arguing that it's based on religious conviction. They sent their papers to each other in advance, and at the beginning of the debate, Stanley Fish stood up and said, I'm wrong, he's right, he's right to correct me. The scientific evidence would say that abortion is wrong. I mean, ultrasound technology showing babies experiencing pain in the womb. Babies now surviving at around 21 weeks. That, that's the youngest historical example that I've, around 21 weeks, babies surviving. But the question again is, when does that child become a human being? I mean, that's the ethical question. It's really even if you read Roe versus Wade, that's the legal issue as well. Because clearly, it's wrong to kill a human being, right? Nobody's going to disagree on that. So, I, I, I want to do something, and then we'll move on past this point. Now, I'm just going to say this. I don't like to be read to, so of course my, li- my wife likes to read to me. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> She's shaking her head at me. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Um, I'm going to read to you for about five minutes, okay, because I think this uh, applies. So, but hang in there. So, uh, so Lily is about to graduate from high school, and she has a class where she has to write a senior thesis. And uh, she wrote her senior thesis entitled Abortion, a Violation of Medical Ethics. She has to defend it in the morning, so you might want to pray for her. But, um, so I'm just using her as my unpaid research assistant. She probably owes me that after all the money I've spent on her over the years. But, <laughs> but um, so she's, she's basically addressing this just from a medical point of view. No Bible, anything like that. Let me just read for. So, furthermore, in their text, the developing human, more and persuade right. Human development begins at fertilization when a male gamete unites with a female gamete to produce a single cell, a zygote. This highly specialized cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. George and Tellefson add, the zygote is genetically complete. It has all the genetic information it will need to develop and grow into a much larger organism. Therefore, a new human is formed through a simple joining of a male and female gamete, a joining that is followed by a flood of other biological processes that allow the zygote that is formed to grow into a larger human being. So if this is how a human being begins, how do human beings develop uh, beyond this? And basically, this zygote that's formed then develops into an embryo. George and Tellefson write, 
A human embryo is not something different in kind from a human being, like a rock or a potato or a rhinoceros. A human embryo is a whole living member of the species Homo sapiens in the earliest stage of his or her natural development. Unless severely damaged or denied or deprived of a suitable environment, an embryonic human being will develop to the next more mature developmental stage, the fetal stage. The embryonic, fetal, child, and adolescent stages are just that. Stages in the development of a determinate and enduring entity, a human being who comes into existence as a single-celled organism, a zygote, and develops, if all goes well, into adulthood many years later. Now, that's the science. Here's the logic based on it. Human beings work through many stages of development from zygote to adult. The common thread here is that each human being is no less human at any point in that development. From the very moment the zygote is formed, the human possesses all that he or she needs genetically to develop into an adult. To assert that a child is not a human being until he or she exits the womb goes against all reasonable scientific considerations of human development. There is no logical foundation upon which anyone may argue that the rapidly developing being, which they consider human after birth, was not human before the moment of birth. Listen, human life must have a starting point. If it is not the moment at which the biologically necessary components from a male and female meet and form a biologically unique being, then there is no logical explanation for human genesis. No one can say that any other point of genesis is based on biology. All beings must have some sort of beginning, and embryology shows that the human life begins at the fertilization of the male and female gametes. Many people claim that embryology does not prove that a child developing in utero is a human being. People justify this claim with reasoning such as the idea that the child is not independent in any way. It is being developed entirely by the resources of the mother who is at liberty to choose whether she wants to continue to support something that is dependent upon her. However, the biology of a developing child shows that to the contrary, and here she's quoting some scientists again, the zygote does not itself serve a functional role in the biological economy of either parent. It is a separate organism, distinct and whole, at the very beginning of a long process of development to adulthood. Furthermore, the human zygote also possesses the active, quote, active capacity for self-development toward maturity using the information it carries. Again, that's the science. What's the inference from it? While a developing child is dependent on the mother for room and board, the child is in no way biologically a part of the mother's independent being. Both the mother and the child are independent beings. Therefore, if the mother would like to choose to not continue to support this biologically independent human being inside of her, she must acknowledge that this would not be causing the demise of any part of her own body. She would instead be causing the demise of a biologically distinct in human being. People may argue further that a child in utero is not a human being to which ethical considerations are due based upon the fact that for the most of a pregnancy, a child cannot survive outside of his or her mother's womb. Again, with medical technology, though, that time frame is lowering 
all the time. And can I just also interject that, I mean, if you really stop and think about it, a child days, weeks, even a few years old, is not going to survive outside of his mother's womb without people caring for them most all the time either. In response to all these claims, picking up reading again, one simple fact stands. All humans require certain conditions in order to survive. Adult humans require certain temperatures, ample nutrition from some willing source, and a safe place to rest in order to survive. In chi- a child in utero requiring very specific conditions, the womb of his or her mother to survive does not make him any or her any less human. Others may accept the humanity of a child in utero, yet assert that a mother's right to choose what she does or doesn't do with anything connected to her body overrides a child's right to live. But the right to live is the most basic right of a human being. You understand? If it's established biologically that it's a human being, then really the question is answered from an ethical point of view. Any other rights are built upon the foundation of the right to live because one cannot be afforded a right if they are not living. A mother's insistence upon her so-called right to choose what happens to something connected to her body is made possible only by the fact that someone chose to allow her the most basic right, the right to live. As a society, we've essentially exchanged the right to live for the right to choose who gets to live. A right that can only be afforded to a person who is herself afforded the right to live. This is a logical cesspool, altogether senseless and wholly unsustainable. I believe that's true. And I believe science and the Bible fit together. They don't contradict one another. God makes us wonderful. But... Notice what the next couple of verses say. God also guides us sovereignly. He has a plan for us that predates us. Look starting at verse 16. He says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. God has a plan for your, I mean, when people say that, it's not just a cliche, it's the truth of Scripture. I mean, we read earlier, you've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand on me. Acts 17, 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the dwellings and the boundaries of their dwellings. There's no accidents There's no illegitimate children. There may be children who have come in the world, uh, you know, through sinful happenings, but they still are part of the plan of God. Um, That Acts 17, 26, he tells us we were born when we were born, where we were born, to whom we were born, by the sovereign plan and will and purpose of God. It means we're created with design and purpose. It means we're created for him and, and by him and through him. To glorify him. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. That's why we're here. And then number five, in verses 19 through 24. 
we see that God judges us righteously. God judges us righteously. Now, in this part of this, and it's a really, it's a little almost like a jarring change here. But this is what's known, I mean, if talking about abortion on Mother's Day isn't enough, uh, this is one of the, what's called one of the imprecatory psalms, where uh, like David invokes wrath on the enemies of God. I mean, here, here's what he says. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Um, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, you know, I th- again, I think the point of this is that God judges us righteously. But you know, He's saying, I mean, how this doesn't add up to me. I thought we're supposed to love people, not hate people, all, all these kind of things. So let me just give you a little bit of uh, explanation of this type of psalm. Okay, Sam Storms describes it this way. He says, these prayers are not expressions of personal vengeance. In fact, most imprecations in the Psalms written by David, who was perhaps the least vengeful man in the Old Testament personally. Remember how he dealt with Saul, Nabal, Absalom, uh, others? David never asked that he be allowed to get even or pay back his enemies. His prayer is that God would act justly in dealing with transgressors. There's a vast difference between vindication and vindictiveness. David's passion was for the triumph of divine justice, not the satisfaction of personal malice. The Old Testament was as much opposed to seeking personal vengeance against one's personal enemies as is the New Testament. See Exodus 23, 4 and 5, Leviticus 19, 17 and 18 for examples when we're told you know, to love our neighbors ourselves. But he also writes that the motivation behind such prayers is zeal for God's righteousness, honor, reputation, and the triumph of his kingdom. Is our willingness to ignore blasphemy and overlook evil due to a deficiency in our love for God and his name? Could our reaction to the imprecatory Psalms be traced to the fact that we love men and their favor more than we love God and his? Another factor to keep in mind is that David being king in a a theocracy was God's representative on earth. Thus, an attack on David was, in effect, an attack on God. David's enemies were not his private opponents, but adversaries of God. And if you notice, he followed this up praying and asking what? Search my heart. Search my heart. So, So ultimately, the point is here that God made us, so God is qualified to judge us. Acts 17.31 says that he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And and, and did you notice the way he ended this? He said, lead me in the way everlasting. And and, and this is so significant in a couple ways. Because if God made us, we're not just material and temporal. We're immaterial and immortal. 
We're going to exist forever. And if we're going to exist forever, this means that everything we do on li- on, in life on earth matters for eternity. It matters for eternity. We are personally accountable to God. Rick Warren has said, life on earth is just the, re- the dress rehearsal before the real production. You will spend far more time on the other side of death and eternity than you will here. Earth is the staging area, the preschool, the tryout for your life and eternity. It is the practice workout before the actual game, the warm-up lap before the race begins. This life is preparation for the next. Death is not your termination, but your transition into eternity. So there are eternal consequences to everything you do on the earth. Listen, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present, and we're made in His image. We're not just physical, we're spiritual. And, and, and again, life is not just temporal, it's eternal. And when you think about life and death, you know, the Bible teaches us that death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul and the body. But spiritual death is the separation of us from a personal relationship with God through sin. But eternal death is being separated forever from Him in hell. And if God made us and we're accountable to Him and He judges us and we're sinners, that means we need His forgiveness. We need Him to do a work in us if we are going to experience eternal life. Life is not just living and dying. It's forever. Jesus said, John 5, 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Are you headed for death? Are you headed for life? God judges us righteously. We're going to have to answer to him. But, you know, we've all sinned, but the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God is the ultimate life giver, not just physically, but spiritually. He made us in his image with purpose and intention and and planning for his glory. He wants uh, to know us and us to know him and enjoy him forever. But that was broken by sin and can only be restored. And we can only truly have life through Jesus Christ. You have that life. So, I want to close this morning by... Just giving us a couple of implications of this. and The two implications are the worldview implication and just some implications for this related to abortion. And when it comes to, to the worldview, I just want to share a few questions with you and just ask you to think about what you believe. Okay? So, do you believe that we're the special creation of God or we're just the product of random chance? Do you believe that every person is made in the image of God and has intrinsic value, dignity, and worth? Or are we just cosmic accidents who have to create our own value? 
Listen, if you believe that we're made in the image of God, that is what to build our self-image and treatment of others off of. Do you believe that God is the source, center, and ruler of everything, or are we at the center of our own worlds determining our own lives? Are we created for the purpose of knowing and glorifying God, or do we have no objective purpose and have to create our own meaning in life? Are we accountable to God for our actions and thus sinners, or is there no ultimate authority that we have to answer to and we can decide our own right and wrong? Do you understand how what we believe about this, whether or not we believe the Bible, we believe the 139th Psalm, versus whether or not you know, we're following humanism, secularism, it's going to, what we believe about the, these things is ultimately going to determine how we live our lives. Action always flows out of conviction. Do we believe that we have a soul and exist forever? Are we just material beings who are going to go back into the ground someday? Is redemption and eternal life found in Jesus Christ? Or can we fix ourselves and the world around us with just human solutions? So what are you going to base your life on? And then, what would be the implications of this for abortion? Again, It's live with a sanctity of life ethic instead of a quality of life ethic and treat every person, every life from the womb to the tomb as worthy of value and and, and dignity. Live out a pro-life ethic towards all people. What would that mean? That would mean minister to the least of these. You know, I think one of the straw man arguments that people use against people who are pro-life is just like, oh, you just care about, you know, babies in the womb, you don't care about other people, you know, do things to make a difference now. That's just ridiculous. You know that statistics show, and I have no trouble believing this just based on what I've seen anecdotally, that when you compare the adoption rate in the general population to adoption rates in, in practicing Christian households, that in practicing Christian households, the adoption rate is two and a half times higher than it is in the general population. And that's what we'd be called to do is to make a difference. We're called to speak the truth in love. And so can I just encourage you, as this is going to be a big issue over the coming weeks, particularly if this decision holds and there's protests and there's rhetoric and probably some similarities to a couple of years ago, a couple of summers ago. So don't get sucked into all that. Love people. Speak the truth in love, but don't come across as hateful and just fighting and and, and arguing. Be kind towards all people. As a church, I mean, this issue is important, but we're never going to be the spiritual equivalent of a single-issue voter. What are we called to do? We're called to meet people where they are and, and help them become fully devoted followers of Christ. We're called to make disciples of all the nations. Well, how does this make a difference? Because the more people meet Jesus and are forgiven and are transformed and grow up in Him, and then they build godly families, uh, it, it, that in and of itself is the greatest preventative of this that you could ever have. You know what's a lot of the foundational contribution to abortion it's the same thing as every other uh, societal problem in the United States. It's 
sex without commitment and sorry men who don't take responsibility for their actions, leaving women in, in bad situations. Unfortunately, and this is a historical fact, women always pretty much get the short end of the stick. And, uh, you know, men are called to lead, but if men lead, don't lead well and don't love well, it has ramifications for everybody else in the world. And so <laughs> we're called to preach the gospel, hold people accountable, call people to spiritual growth and, and, and transformation. And as lives change, as hearts change, as minds change, all, I mean, laws are important. But you can change the law and somebody else just come along and change it. It's an issue of hearts and minds and conviction and truth and right and wrong. And not just knowing it in their head, but having the power in their hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit to do the right thing. It's God changing us from the inside out. It's the church leading the way in love and serving people and ministering to people and living in a way that shows the reality of the gospel. That's what we're called to do, not just throw uh, hand, hand grenades at people we disagree with on social media. I want you to know there's grace for those who have had abortions. And listen, I mean, just it's not something that people do and just move on in life with no afterthought or after effect. It affects you, but God can heal you. Talk to somebody, get help. Ultimately, if you're not a Christian, repent and trust Jesus so you can live for the purpose which you're created of knowing and glorifying God so you can have eternal life, so you're not doing life on your own. If you are a Christian, I mean, are you living with a consistently biblical worldview, set of ethics? Are you following Scripture as a compass to guide your life? And are you living to make a difference in the lives of the people who are in your sphere of influence, living to make a difference in the next generation? I mean, what Mandy said is so true. I mean, Again, we're in a battle for hearts and minds, and we're called to pass this on to the next generation and equip them to make a difference in the world, but they got to see it in us. So, we talk about life. Are we ultimately going to be givers of life? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.